everyone, it's the season premiere, premiere, and we are here to welcome you back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey, y'all. I'm Brendan, and I also use she, her, hers pronouns. We're back live and direct as my brother would say, uh, for our third season. And this year, you'll have 16 episodes of Black Feminist Anthropology Goodness featuring us, the coolest anthropologists in town, and some incredible guests throughout the season. There's something oxymoronic about cool anthropologists, but... You know, <laughs> we'll, let it, we'll let it slide. You, you all will let it slide, I hope. Um, I really, I can't believe we've been doing this podcast for two years. Um, time flies, season three. Time flies. Here we are, 2022. Time flies, and we're still in school. But <laughs> <laughs> some of us are closer to being done than others. Oh, fingers crossed. But this year, we will be changing things up a little bit. We'll be keeping the same format you all love with our three segments. But instead of scripting our What in the World segment, we'll actually be freestyling it. We'll be shooting the shit because we know how you all just love to hear us riff and chat so much. Also, we have a new member of the team, Mia. Hey, hey, hey. If you haven't seen our social media posts, um, head to Instagram, head to Twitter, head to Patreon, and you will get to see a little bit more information about her. Mia is our new social media assistant, so she is the one who's going to be pretty much having the run of our social media accounts. So if you're active there, please send her a message, say what's up, hello, welcome. And if you want to know more about her, you can check out the About Us highlight on Instagram. Now, before we get into the episode, we would like to give a huge thank you to all of you, our listeners, our supporters, our lovers, and our haters. There are a couple of y'all out there, right? So whether you love to listen or hate listen, honestly, honey, do you, um, it's still a listen, right? And the algorithms can't tell the difference. So... We are not a podcast that advertise brands, and we really rely on folks like you to keep our proverbial and actual lights on. Um, <laughs> so if you would like to become a patron, you can support our work for as little as $3 a month. So if that interests you, head to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to check out the different tiers and join the community. You all help keep our podcast accessible in so many more ways than just one. And now, we know some folks don't have the coin to spare, and we totally understand. I mean, we are still graduate students, right? It's, it is a whole... <laughs> it's a pandemic. It's inflation it's pandemic. up in this bit. Like, mm, like this inflation. inflation, a housing crash, and a car market crash. It's a great time to buy a used car. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> that's what I've been reading up on lately. Um, life is just expensive, even if we weren't in the midst of the fall of capitalism, quote unquote. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. (laughs) If you still want to support the podcast without having to spend your hard-earned money, please share this episode on social media. Share it with your friends, your family, those frenemies, those work folks that need to learn a little bit more education, but you ain't got the time to teach them. And be sure to tell people why you enjoyed it. 
Yes, that is key. That is key. Also, we will be announcing our book of the semester soon. So for those patrons who are at the novelists and above tier, um, we send out books every semester that is of our choosing. Uh, the summer, the summer term, I guess we can call it, was um, we did abolition geographies by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. So, you know, let's see what let's see what's coming out. You can add some ZD picks to your library. And okay, wow, we're doing a lot of promo today, but it's a new season. You you all need to know what's been <laughs> what's been going on over the summer for us. So we have some brand new merch. Most of our pieces we completely redesigned, overhauled, redid. Instead of a what in the massage noir t-shirt, we actually have a tote bag in our very cute blue color. Um, we have new t-shirts with our new logos on them. We have mugs, we have sticker sheets. We even have a learning with ZD notebook. So that's gonna be, I mean, besides one of us being right next to you, I would say that's probably your next best companion to every episode, you know? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> so you can order them online at zorasdaughters.com backslash shop. And if you already have our merch, please share some photos on social media and tag us. You know, we'd love to see you rocking our I Am Black Anthro shirts. And if you're like, whoa, weren't you guys just talking about the fall of capitalism? Again, all of... We do not make that much on the merch. It's really just for you all to, you know, to enjoy us, to show your support to us and to help other people see us. And it helps us with the production of the podcast costs effectively. So, yes, it takes money to do this. thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I am really excited about the Zora Taught Me shirts. Yes. Um, I like some of the shirts. I'm, I was like, OK, so, you know, my next little semester check let me pick up a few things um <laughs> and i think those are really going to be a hit and the heather color options the navy blue options it's just it's lit y'all really honestly check it out yeah i ordered the heathered green and i cannot wait all right so now we're going to talk about the episode what we're doing today what you all are about to listen to we're going to be talking about post-feminism the representations of black women in TV and films, and the problems with looking to celebrities as role models and representatives of what is good, right, moral, effectively mm. the cult of celebrity, and mm. why it's problematic and vaguely anti-black and misogynist. but mm. wait till we get there. So we will be referencing archetypes like the Sapphire and the Mammy, so we highly suggest heading back to our second episode ever. See us coming full circle and whatnot. So our second episode from the first season to review wow. where we where we covered some of those archetypes. Other good episodes that you might want to have a look at again before getting into this episode is season one, episode 20, Black Like Kim K, where we, where we read uh, Bell Hooks Eating the Other, and season one, episode 14, Afro-Pessimism, Anything But Black. Because uh, we talked about Meghan Markle, the Meghan Markle situation, and Oprah, Ooh. and we might get into that today. So let's see, let's see what I happens. Mean. But let's get in to the episode. Brendan, what's the word? The word for today is post-feminism. 
So much like the waves of feminism, which we discussed in season one, episode 17, hot girl semester. Ooh, that was a good one. Uh-huh. Uh, the term post-feminism has taken on a variety of meanings over time. So in the 1980s, post-feminism referred to the backlash against feminist politics that demanded women's equality. And in our reading today, however, the term is used to encompass a set of assumptions that describe the pastness of feminism. Post-feminist discourse, which is most readily seen in media representations, suggests that we no longer need feminism because we have achieved the equality that second-wave feminists demanded. And those who create post-feminist content characterized in the literature by shows like Ali McBeal and Sex in the City, right, depict a world where women are reaping the benefits of the women's movement without actually having to be, quote-unquote, feminist. Exactly. And if you can't already see the issues, you'll need to go back <laughs> to the beginning. Go back to the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so this is something that we often see when the prefix post is added to a term, especially a term that's used for social critique. So in heritage studies, for example, we speak of the phenomena of firsting and lasting. So that refers to the power required and prestige conferred when claiming something as the first or the last, like to being the first person to discover a place or being the last living survivor of the Middle Passage. Mm. So it shows up in my research when I say Martinique was the first producer of coffee in the New World. You know, people's eyes widen and they're so intrigued by this whole thing. They're like, oh, really? I didn't know that. So what does posting do? I'm making this up. This is, I have no one said this but me. Well, maybe, but I don't know. No, it's your theoretical intervention. It's my intervention. It. What does this posting do, right? Like, <laughs> When we speak of the post-racial, post-civil rights, post-colonial, post-feminist, what does that mean? What does it do? It operates to make us believe that we have transcended particular forms of oppression or that struggles for liberation are behind us. And that's why, mm-hmm. that's why the work of critique is so important. It's there to point out the ways we are not, we ain't post-nothing, we ain't post-Nathan. Nada. Nada. <laughs> These oppressions are still with us. You know, that to quote Saidia Hartman, we live in the time of slavery. We ain't post, we ain't post Nathan. Nathan, ain't post shit. Uh, (laughs) We, (laughs) we honestly couldn't even go one episode without bringing in, you know, my girl Saidia. And honestly, why would we even try? What is Black Studies without her work? Why? Why would we? (laughs) But I think one important distinction to make is that post-feminism is not a politics. And of course it has political stakes. And if you remember the episode, one, one episode where we talked about politics of, aesthetics of, politics is about power. Mm-hmm. It's about what we can and cannot do. And so post-feminism, in that sense, isn't a politics. It's an ideology that is expressed culturally. So we see it in TV shows, music, films, and just the, the general understanding and opinion uh, around a certain topic in society and the people that we speak to. One of the ways that we see this is that certain, certain women, wink, wink, nod, nod, will agree (laughs) with certain feminist principles, like, say, equality, but hesitate to use the label. So I feel like the person who's coming to my mind the most is Taylor Swift. She'll be like, oh, I'm not a a feminist. And honestly, even Beyonce had an issue with the word 
uh, maybe early earlier on in her career. She would not. She said that she wasn't a feminist. I'm pretty sure. Mm, wow. Please don't have the beehive come for me. Um, <laughs> Woo, we're going to get to it later. I got it wrong, I can but see I'm, why. I'm quite confident that she that she did say that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can see why the the Aryan princess, uh, Taylor Swift, would not do it. But Yeah, um, yeah she was very much like, yeah. I'm not a feminist. I don't really even know what it means. So she's she's, a, she's alienating she's, her fan base. Yeah, she's living in a in a post feminist <laughs> world um, in her in her mind and through her connections. And another so another way we see this post feminism is through the commodification of feminism. So where feminism mm-hmm. becomes consumed and popularized, and then through that process defangs it. Right, it's naturalized and therefore neutralizes its radical potential. So feminist politics and concerns are silenced in a culture that believes in post-feminism. Period. And one of the most glaring silences, at least to us, right, is that of race. So post-feminism actually centers the advancements of affluent, elite, upper-class white women and actually erases race and especially blackness, which to go back to what Alyssa pointed out, right, is that the whole reason why we need critique in this society, right, that loves to say that progress and posting uh, and not posting like Instagram, but posts (laughs) dashing everything that is radical. And that's exactly what we'll be looking at in the next section when we take on a racial analysis of the critiques of post-feminism in popular culture. So, Alyssa, what are we reading today? We are reading, whoo, I love this title. Okay, Kimberly Springer brought it. She <laughs> brang it. Brang it. <laughs> Divas, Evil Black Bitches, and Bitter Black Women. African-American Women in Post-Feminist and Post-Civil Rights Popular Culture. It's written by Kimberly Springer. Kimberly Springer is the curator for the Oral History Archives at Columbia University's Rare Book and Manuscript Library. She holds a Master's of Information Science, specializing in archives, preservation, and social computing from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Springer obtained her doctorate from the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Emory University in Atlanta. Her research and publication areas are born digital materials, artist studio archives, social media, social movements, and television studies as they intersect with race, gender, and sexuality. Springer's publications include Living for the Revolution, Black Feminist Organizations, 1968 to 1980, Still Lifting, Still Climbing, African-American Women's Contemporary Activism, and Stories of Oprah, The Oprahfication of American Culture, as well as several articles in several journals and edited volumes. And so this essay that we will be discussing today, it was published in 2007 in the edited volume, Interrogating Post-Feminism, Gender and the Politics of Popular Culture. So this essay, and I wanted to have an opportunity to say the title. So uh, Divas, <laughs> Evil Black Bitches, and Bitter Black Women takes on post-feminist and post-civil rights movement discourse in popular culture. 
And Springer adeptly takes us through cultural factors in the 19th and 20th centuries that would even allow for some, wink, wink, right, to claim that we live in a post-feminist and post-civil rights world. And these discourses, as we've mentioned, right, often omit race, and I would add specifically anti-Blackness, right, as a rubric of understanding the world. And they omit how these rubrics shape representations of women in popular culture. So in this article, Springer aims to examine both African-American women's presence and absence in post-feminist manifestations of popular culture. Now, don't be fooled, right? Springer is not over here arguing for more just representations of Black American women in popular culture. Like, we've moved past the representation optics phase of things. Post optics. Post that. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> post representation. <laughs> but instead, she situates her analysis in describing how post-feminist and post-civil rights movement thinking takes us back. And I would say take us back to slavery, but she doesn't quite go that far um, and actually works against women's interests in general. These discourses actually politically, quote, pick up where misogynistic and racist stereotypes, often now implicit, left off, taking them to a new level of identity construction. So we won't be able to capture all of the nuance of her article. She has a lot of examples and things that really kind of flesh out uh, her argument, but we're definitely going to encourage you all to read it for yourselves. Yes. And also keep in mind, it was published in 2007. So mm-hmm. one of the things we'll be talking about in the next segment will will kind of bring some of her analyses into 2022 and the wonderful influencer culture that has been added to celebrity culture mm-hmm. and forms of popular media. All right, but we we only have an hour, so let me just let me just keep going. Let me keep going. Get into it. You know, <laughs> she begins by defining post-feminism and post-civil rights, using an intersectional analysis to show how they work together to produce certain cultural stereotypes about African American women. We already defined post-feminism for y'all earlier, so we'll define post-civil rights discourse as something that is based in the belief that Black people and other people of color have achieved equality because slavery is over and the civil rights movement has netted gains for black people, mainly the end of segregation and the passing of the civil rights law, Mm -mm. civil rights act. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. I mean, redlining and all of the other incarceration situations don't count. Of course, of course. Again, the post is not posting. The post is not posting. (laughs) (laughs) So post-civil rights movement discourse is essentially the backlash against the achievements of the civil rights movement. Post-feminist critique in particular is rooted in what Springer names as a, quote, liberal, pluralist, feminist framework of equality. This critique flourishes in today's world because we encounter feminist language that has been torn away from feminist struggle that it perpetuates a conservative and sexist status quo. So post is actually a misnomer because the same shit has been happening pre and right now. And if we don't do something, if it don't change, (laughs) it's going to keep the post is the pre is the present. Y'all can quote me on that. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's important to distinguish between language and struggle because the use of feminist language is actually how post-feminism exploits liberal feminism's weakness and inability to account for race. And so we've briefly touched on this in previous episodes, but the post in both of these terms is something that is obviously not true. Springer mentions this towards the end of the article, and this is something that I'm actually thinking through with my own research in Martinique. You know, I asked, mm-hmm. what is the post in post-colonial really doing when we continue to revive and market and commodify colonial commodities and products? So, of course, it is those in power who benefit from making us believe that we are beyond colonialism, beyond class, beyond race. But it's not really doing much right. for us, right? Like, that's what we were saying. It's, a, it's not a politics, it's an ideology, but it does have political stakes, and these are the political stakes. Mm-hmm. Makes you believe you further than where than where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there is lots to be said about the whiteness of the post marker. Um, again, steeped in power, prestige, especially when we still live in a world that is marked by racial, gender, class, and ability differences. And so Springer brings our attention to the fact that feminists of color, particularly Black feminists, have long argued for radical social transformation, particularly in the United States, where equality discourse is rooted in a founding national document crafted by slaveholders and begins with the words, quote, all white men are created equal. So with this, right, Springer actually exposes the racial agenda of post-feminism, right, which is the erasure of progress that you know, and the word progress for me is a very troubling word, but it's the word that she uses. Um, <laughs> the ratio of the progress of racial inclusion uh, in the mainstream feminist movement since the 1980s. And how does it do this? Right. It actually does this by making racial difference and feminism commodities for consumption in the pursuit of being the woman who, quote, has it all, right? So this woman, the post-feminist woman has beauty. She has meaningful work, right? She has meaningful middle-class work in a family. And so we can see this in the rise of the BBL across all races. Um, and now the backlash for that. Now we're entering into the, we're moving back to the thin girls era, if y'all haven't noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, when they started saying see- that low-cut jeans are coming back, I was upset. I was like, give me my high-waisted jeans. Like, no. I mean... <laughs> I'm keeping... I'm keeping I mean... I'm keeping my high-waisted jeans. I mean, I was never on trend. I think... <laughs> never never been on trend. So, I'm going to just stay where I'm at. But the Britney Spears of the world... And this is no tea, no shade to Britney Spears. But the Britney Spears of the world want their low-cut jeans back. They can't have them. They can't not have them. (laughs) Springer traces the role post-feminism plays in the post-civil rights era by exploring the origin of the welfare queen trope that dominated political discourse. The welfare queen stereotype arose as a backlash when, quote, white slave masters no longer profited from black women's offspring, end quote, by claiming poor black women profited off tax dollars by having children they couldn't afford to raise on their own. So when Clinton passed welfare reforms, the image of the welfare queen morphed into the crack-addicted mother, which served its own purpose in the war on drugs. Ultimately, Springer argues that the iconography of the Mammy, the Jezebel, the Sapphire, the Matriarch, the welfare queen, the crack-addicted mother still exist in popular culture, 
but they have new updates for the post-feminist, post-civil rights movement era. These updates include the diva, the black lady, and the angry black women, images that dominate popular culture representations of black women. She ironically asks, if we are beyond discriminatory behavior, how do we account for the diva, black lady, and angry black woman images that populate the current cultural landscape? How, Sway? How? How? Uh, well, this is how. Through post-feminist and post-surprise <laughs> <laughs> movement era discourse, right? So she then takes us through several representations of black women in popular culture and media, namely reality TV and movies, to illustrate her general theory of black femininity within post-feminist and post-civil rights movement discourses and shows examples of this kind of backlash representation. So there isn't enough time to read all of her examples. I mean, in in the essay, she's like, I'm doing an inexhaustive read, but you get quite a lot of detail. Um, shows that I have never watched. I now know enough about to be like, absolutely the fuck not. Um, and, but I think it's important, uh, to summarize some of her findings. And so that's what we will do for you all today, right? In regards to the popular image of the diva, right? Springer asserts that it's applied unevenly along the lines of race. So most often we see women of color being called divas, but Mariah Carey has reclaimed it as like, yeah, this is who I am. Um, Beyonce has also quote unquote, reclaimed diva in one of her songs. Right? But typically in, a, in kind of a mainstream culture, when you call someone a diva, that usually means that they are unhinged, right? They have unreasonable demands and they act without any kind of basis for their behavior. And for Springer, the diva label is, quote, is ultimately just another form of categorization that classes women according to how well they adhere to race class, and sexuality norms, right? So for those women who are poor versus those who are middle class versus those who are upper class, right? They have different access to the label of diva. Mm -hmm. And it comes with different meanings as well. Mm -hmm. So in a post-feminist world, Springer underscores that racial and gender stereotypes have become the, quote, commodity that make difference legible in popular culture. Reality TV has adopted the stereotype of the angry black woman, the Jezebel, and the nurturing mammy. And with the rise of the black middle class, these stereotypes have also been, become classed. So the loud, bitchy black woman signals poor or working class behavior, while the black lady is the epitome of respectable femininity to the extent that black women can be considered feminine. Mm -hmm. And if you're like, well, what does that mean? Y'all just have to listen to our to the entire body of our work. <laughs> <laughs> the black lady role is designed to counter the anti-black image of the whore and to say that one can be middle class if they work outside the home in a respectable profession. In today's world, the mammy has been resurrected in the black lady, where maneuvering through this modern mammy requires a delicate balance between being appropriately subordinate to white and or male authority yet maintaining a level of ambition and aggressiveness needed for achievement in middle-class occupations. And from maneuvering to occupations, that was a quote from Springer. She cites Condoleezza Rice as a prime example of the black lady. Other examples include black lady judges and black lady cops. By presenting these images of black women, modern shows can evade accusations of racism while portraying subservient black women. 
And so I wonder, I wonder how Michelle Obama would play into this, like if she had, if, if she had published this article in 2017. Um, I wonder how Michelle Obama would play into that, in, into this um, stereotype or this role. And then, of course, she also talked about Oprah. Oprah's like your, another one of your classic mammy, mammy figures. figures became successful coddling white women on television. So mostly white women. Yes. Um, I mean, who? how else do you become a billionaire? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I do think that Michelle Obama would be a black lady. Um I think she would be a black lady because she's definitely not any of these other types for sure. Mm. Um, as much as they tried to portray and, her as such through a variety of representations, comics and the like. Yeah, and skin color and body type had a big, played a big role in that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so if the black lady is the modern resurrection of the mammy, then the evil black woman is the modern representation of the sapphire. And these black women have no place in a white world because they are not subservient. So though they drive up these reality TV ratings, write their portrayals as evil and hard to work with, typically prevent them from being successful in their own professional lives. And many of these black women, when they reflect on their TV experiences and Swinger kind of goes through this in much more uh, detail in the article, right? they talk about how they were inaccurately portrayed by the editors. Right? You know, I'm blaming on the editors all the time. Right. Uh, and Springer really launches into an interesting conversation about the role of, quote, truth in reality TV. And as we all know, reality TV is not actually real, right? But it does provide some sense of realness, right? Otherwise we wouldn't engage with it. But I won't go into the nuances of her argument, but I will read her bottom line. So quote, reality TV participants benefit from this regime of truth only to the extent that they adhere to dominant ideas about race, class, gender, sexuality, and physical ability. However, when it comes to racism and sexism, a subjective experience is usually discounted as paranoia and outside the regime of truth. When confident Black women Refusing to conform to these criteria, as well as rejecting historical perceptions of Black women as only existing to make white lives better, do appear in reality TV competitions. Not only do they lose, but they also end up maligned. And one of the examples that she uses, right, is actually she talks about uh, a Black woman on The Apprentice Show who was blamed for undermining the black man, but she was kicked off the show much more earlier than the black man was. Like he was actually second place. Omarosa. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I didn't watch that show. So I'm like, oh, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to talk too much about it. Um, just because of, you know, who it's about, but, um, right. These ideas that if you're not a subservient mammy type of black woman, that you are in fact compromising, racial uplift, right, or compromising, you know, white people's comfortability, um, so then you are an evil black woman, right, actually complicates, like, 
what we receive in popular representations of black women. So in short, uh, Springer says, quote, reality TV cannot accommodate black women who do not fit the few sanctioned contemporary roles, which are the ubiquitous, ubiquitous black woman judge, the abusive single mother, or the police captain without a capacity for significant action. I just rewatched The Mentalist and uh, I concur with that last one. But one of the things that mm. I was thinking about when you were talking is just reality TV and whose reality is actually being depicted in those mm-hmm. shows. And last night, the fiance had some friends over there doing their Game of Thrones watch party thing and all this stuff. And they were talking about how there were all of these critiques of the shows and how there were no black people in them and no people, very few people of color and things like that. And I was like, but, but that's, that's the white fantasy, right? Like for there to be a world free of, of racial complications, free of black people, especially. And I think it's similar with reality TV, right? It's like every day, typical black people don't exist in their reality in, in the reality of the mm-hmm. producers who are coming up with the show. So yeah, you're not going to see multidimensional representations of, of black people and especially black women because they don't exist in their reality. Just like it's a post-feminist world for, for Taylor Swift in her reality, but that's not the case for most people living on this planet. That's what you get represented on reality television is someone's reality but not the reality of the people who are actually on the show. Right. And also, I'm going to just say this and I'm going to leave it alone. Why do people want black people to be on a show that's about incest and white war? I don't, that (laughs) doesn't make sense to me. That Game of Thrones, I was actually kind of upset. Like, why are there, why are there black people in this? This is not. I think I think Amanda Seals said that. She was like, I don't. I think it was Amanda Seals. She was like, I don't need to see black people. This shit is so gory and just violent. I don't. I don't. I don't don't need to see that. But I mean, that that that. that's something that we need to talk about is like Bridgerton and all of these quote unquote post racial shows where they're casting people of color in roles that they would not have actually held historically in the places that they're talking about them. So that's, maybe, maybe we'll talk about that because I'm still trying to decide how I, how I feel about it. Yeah. Bookmark. Bookmark. Thank you. (laughs) Bookmark. (laughs) Springer asserts that post-feminist discourse, like post-civil rights movement discourse, ignores the history that makes these black women angry. In post-feminism, the angry black woman is always already angry, and her inclusion in popular culture is enough evidence that feminism is no longer necessary. In the post-civil rights movement era, quote, inclusion means merely having a presence, not empowerment in terms of self-determination. The final popular culture image Springer explores is the bitter black woman. The bitter black woman is one who is married to a black man, who works hard to make sure he atri- he achieves his dreams. And then when he's good and ready, he leaves her broken destitute for a white or light-skinned woman. So the bitter black woman shows where post-feminist and post-civil rights discourse intersect when she is humbled and forced to return home to her family and the black community she neglected or to her circle of sister friends. The post-civil rights movement assumption here 
is that black women who move too high above their social standing lose their connection to black culture. The post-feminist angle here is that she returns home to become the mother, daughter, sister, and or friend that she never was or failed to be. It's a return to her rightful place. These stereotypes demonstrate that the general post-feminist message for black women is that they need to stay in their place within racial and gender hierarchies. So some of the examples that Springer brings up are uh, Waiting to Exhale, which not going to lie, <laughs> love it. Love that movie. Um, Tyler Perry's Diary of a Mad Black Woman. I grew up in a cult. And so the only things that we were really allowed to watch were like, quote unquote, Christian things. And Tyler Perry was a staple of my upbringing. So that movie also has a special place in my, in my heart. But um, a beauty shop. Right. If you... Beauty shop with Queen Latifah. With Queen Latifah was also a, another example. Queen Latifah returns home uh, to be a business owner, and so on one hand, uh, uncritically, right? These films are positive, right? They show black women coming back to themselves, you know, right? And what is really, I guess, disturbing if you peel back, right? What is presented to you, right? Is that even in these fantasies. Right, black women cannot escape the work of racial uplift. Um, no matter where you are, right? Black women, even in the fantasy of coming back to herself, you still got to, you know, get your ass up and work. Um, and so they are still required to work as they have always been asked to do. And as Springer states, quote, post-feminist and post-civil rights discourses require black women not to have it all, but to continue to do it all. Right. Middle class black women are marginally afforded status as women or ladies, more specifically, if they conform to a politics of respectability. If they do not conform, they are relegated to the evil black woman category along with poor and working class black women. The work, the labor, the everything. The labor, everything. Well, it's part and parcel of what it means to be black. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, with that said, I think Springer's conclusion leads us nicely into the next segment. She updates Audrey Lord's metaphor by saying that the master's house has not, in fact, been dismantled, but instead has added additional rooms and annexes in which to harbor oppressive variations of racist, sexist, classist, and heterosexist themes. All of these additional rooms and annexes actually give us more reason to be critical of the media we consume and the images we align ourselves with. So we might actually be working against our own liberation. And that is why we do this podcast and include the social media popular culture stuff. Because we've got to be critical because of it. That's how we have to be critical of it. That's how it goes. That's how it is. Yeah, uncritical consumption leads to mess, which is what we about to <laughs> which is what we about to talk about. So let's move to our next section. Uh, what? 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 What in the world? What in the world is like what what in the world is actually fucking going on? I <laughs> really I really need to know. I really want to know. All right, so <laughs> Uh, this was not originally on the list that we had talked about, but I really, as I was reading, um, 
Springer's essay, I was like, we have to talk about Watch Jazzy, the Watch Jazzy interview with Shan Boudram. So mm-hmm. if you all are not familiar, Watch Jazzy, I think she's a YouTuber or something. She's some kind of influencer. And she is now dating, or at the time of the interview, was dating Tristan Thompson, who is a football player, I believe. You know what, y'all, if I get it wrong, I get it wrong. But no. the point is, she's dating someone who is also, who is a high profile um, Was that man, the one that kissed Jordan athlete. Woods? Could not tell you. Could not tell you who this man is. Okay, all right. Um, really... Shan Boudram is a <laughs> uh, Canadian sexologist, sex instructor. Yes, I can't even remember. Yeah, she I was like sex podcast. and relationships. Um, I actually really like her as an interviewer. Um, it's a good podcast. Mm-hmm. In any case, um, the topic that they were discussing was submission. Now, watch Jazzy, Jasmine. Uh, that's what she wanted to talk about. She wanted to talk about how how great it has been to be submissive. How she how she babies her man. How she takes care of her man. How he <laughs> the ways that she looks after him and does anything that he asks her to do, including sexually even if she does not even if she's not particularly uh willing or open she will submit herself to him in all of those kinds of ways and i just it really got, it got me thinking about all of the all of these conversations that are going on right now with with the black black masculinity folks and if you're like what are you guys talking about with this black masculinity and divine femininity stuff mm-hmm. another question i have is is this very particular to the black community or are other communities having these kinds of conversations but anyways you all can listen to our episode villain origin story with anuli Aknebu, um and then you can you can brush up a little bit on what you're talking on what we are talking about and so in these conversations men are like Oh, black women, you need to submit. You need to you need to be willing to stay home and you know raise children and look after the household. You all are meant to be homemakers. But Springer points out, and this is very important, that black women are and continue to be necessary to the workforce. And these mm-hmm. post-feminist representations make it clear that black women actually cannot achieve the status of the black lady of lady by withdrawing from the workforce like white women. So we are required to labor. Like when she said we have to have it all means to do it all, it's not like white women where having it all is like, oh, I can do a little bit of this, I can do a little bit of that, a little bit of this. No, black women have to do everything for everybody and be happy about it. And now black men are asking us to do it with a smile on our faces. Um. Um, hmm. I mean, for me, there are lots of things to say about this. I, and it goes back to what we talked about, like part and parcel of what it means to be a black woman is to work, right? Like blackness by definition is defined by, you know, chattel slavery. So this idea that black men and black women have different roles is, it's not historically true, given the fact that during slavery, black men and black women were out there working together. The only thing that uh, black people 
with penises couldn't do was give birth, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of reproductive labor was part of what it meant to be an enslaved black woman. But outside of that, you were pregnant and picking cotton right next to the other niggas. So I, (laughs) I, I mean, I think what's happening here and what's always been happening with this kind of black masculinity, whether you want to label it as toxic or not, is that black men really want to be white and they see that ascension to whiteness um, through as like the only way for that to be possible is through the oppression of black women. Mm. Right. So they assume that they can mirror what white men do in their homes and it will lead them to the same result. Um, And of course, we know that that requires a certain kind of psychic split of just like, well, you know, what about the fact that you are still, you know, black? And like, even if you dominate and violate, et cetera, you still have to deal with being black in an anti-black world. So I write like what you're saying about black women always having to work and this idea, too, that like submission is not work. Like it's. I don't know. I, I, I like I there's so many, I guess, mean things I could say. The the least mean thing I will say, right, is why should I submit to a man who is probably less educated than me, who probably makes less money than me, who probably statistically doesn't have the same um, skills that I have, doesn't um, and like his whole being is staked around me being lesser mm-hmm. than him. But there's no there's no concrete evidence that that's the case because I can do everything you can do and, and more <laughs> give birth and more and give birth so it's 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 really it's really giving this is nonsensical in a lot of ways um, but also what I saw I saw someone talk about online is that the rise of all of this kind of men belong in the workforce and women stay at home mess is is. partially because people are trying to ignore the fact that we are entering into a depression. People call it a recession, but a depression, Mm. right? Economic depression. And when that happens, there is always this kind of reversion to these conservative values. Mm. I, my hope and prayer for people who are already oppressed by cishet life, is that they get free and understand that like aspiring to whiteness is not going, it's not going to get you where you want it to be. It's not. I, I, it's I, not. Saw, I saw an Instagram post. I think it's by, it was by a professor and it was just like, the heads are not, the cis heads are not okay. It was, there's actually not. another, um, another one of these like relationship femininity influencer people doing an interview talking, talking about how, um, I, she was like, I don't correct my man. Oh. She was like, I don't correct my man. I never, he's not a child. I tell him what I think should be done and he makes the correction on his own, blah, blah, blah. And she was just like, the, the cis heads are not okay. But, I, but I do want to go back to this, this, this question of black men wanting to be like white men, which if if on the off chance they find this woman who does want to be a to be a homemaker, a stay-at-home mother, you're you're still not going to achieve the status that a white man has by having a white woman working in or 
being a homemaker, being a stay-at-home mother. Mm-hmm. Because because of what Springer wrote, that we are, Black women are necessary to the workforce, it doesn't come with the same prestige. It actually brings associations of um, the welfare mother. Like, it, mm-hmm. that, that is the kind of idea that's going to be sparked. Like, oh, you're a Black woman, that doesn't work. Well, you must be on welfare or, you know those kinds of things. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, even the the gold digger kind of archetype or the yeah. uh, is is kind of like a modern update or whatever you want to call it of the welfare queen, right? The black, the young, sexy black woman who takes, quote unquote, takes advantage of men with money, right? This idea that money is something that you're not supposed to, spend but hoard again that's like white supremacist thinking and also this idea that like being in relationships with people regardless of whether you have sex with them or not right but like actually being in relationship with people is work is labor right it requires affective labor it requires emotional labor it requires all of these things and even in that interview that you were talking about with um jasmine the amount of emotional and affective labor that she has to do. She's like, you know, I anticipate my man's needs before he even says it. That's honey. That's a, that is abuse. These are, this is like a dynamic abusive dynamic. Um, which I think Shan, Shannon does a good job of kind of saying that, but, but not being too direct with it, not shaming her, but just saying like, this actually does not sound safe. Um, and she talked about like having anal sex with, whoever she's with, right? Even though it hurts her, mm-hmm. right? That is not, that's not okay, yeah. right? That is not the cost of being in a relationship and having your bills paid and making sure your nails get done and you can buy the purse you want, right? Like that's, you know, and the, the same people who say these kind of things will then turn around and say um, demeaning, derogatory, discriminatory things about people who do sex work, mm-hmm. right? And say, well, you know, women who just quote unquote trade their bodies for things they want, right. Are, are not good women. Um, and we all know that that is based in like misogyny as well. And so, um, because there was Jasmine Sullivan's album, one of the things she said, one of the people that she had on from hotels was like, y'all want to talk about the women who, you know, selling their bodies or whatever, but you sell your body to your husband when you want a new purse. You sell your body to your husband when you want to, you know, blah, blah. So like all of these false values that people have, um, that are just really entrenched in like, in white supremacist and anti-black thinking. And that really just doesn't, right. That just works against what, we need as women which is self-determination like i want to live in a world where if i choose to work i can work i don't know why i would choose it but i you know (laughs) or (laughs) or if i want to you know sit at home and be a stay at home blank don't i don't even know i don't want to be a stay at home mom or you know wife or whatever then i can do that too yeah but that's not like what people are reaching for with this mm-hmm. submission thing. And also the other thing, again, I was raised in a cult. People don't understand that all this talk about submission comes from the Bible that was curated in the 
fifteen hundreds mm-hmm. to justify slavery. Yeah. So all these verses that people are actually referencing about submission that they don't understand is actually coming from the Bible was actually written to encourage enslaved people to listen to their masters. So in the same section of the Bible where we they talk about wives submitting to husbands, they talk about slaves submitting to masters. Mm. So whenever you engage into in this kind of submissive dynamic that's outside of, of course, BDSM stuff, because that's a different, whole nother different conversation, right? You're actually entering into kind of Christian, uh, fascist, slavery stuff. So just throwing that out there. Exciting stuff. <laughs> I, I think one thing that I want folks to, to think about is, you know, on whose back are you going to be? enjoying the soft life period. right like originally period. it was period it was black women right i recently saw this post where in south carolina white women basically started complaining to government officials they were like there aren't enough black women working uh so i don't have anyone to clean my home or to cook for me or to launder my clothes for me <laughs> So they actually passed a law in South Carolina in a, in a town, I forget the, which one it was, um, that required black women to work even if they didn't need to. So at the time, it was during the war. So at the time, there were a lot of um, black men who were at war. So black women, their wives were getting their um, stipend checks. And so they didn't need to work. And the women were like, we don't need to work, so we don't want to. And it became illegal for black women to refuse labor to refuse work so i just so originally so it was us it was black women now people are like all right we we need an underclass of people who can continue to Mm -hmm. clean our homes and do our laundry and to cook for us and to do all of these things even if it's just takeout like think about who works in the backs of those kitchens where you're ordering takeout from right so Mm -hmm. All of these like moves to bring back this the old ways, these traditional, the traditional wife, the housewife, and all of these things. It's it's completely post-feminist. It's couched in this language of choice, but it ignores the like the class part of it, where we need an underclass of people mm-hmm. to make your divine feminine dreams come true. And so that is what I would like people to think about as we talk about class. We're gonna talk about Beyonce. And hope Beyonce actually inspired this episode. <laughs> we haven't talked about Honestly, her yet. Honestly, <laughs> we were. <sighs> she did. Got to give the Virgo Queen yeah, some credit, her. and I say Virgo Queen, not. I, not I respectfully. Clear. Disrespectfully. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh no. Oh, not even really disrespectfully either, because I. Again. I don't mean to disrespect her. I say Virgo Queen is in the label that I've seen people give to her, but I in no way worship Beyonce. Okay. That's it. That's all. That's Perfect. It. Wonderful. So, <laughs> you know, so we we did hire a social media assistant. We did a lot of interviews, um, which everyone was so wonderful and all of the applications were great. We just want to throw that out there. Um, we're so grateful for our audience and the people who listen and the people who are out there who want to support us. One of the questions that we asked was, what are you following in popular culture right now? And every single person said Renaissance, Beyonce's album. Talk about a throwback. Yes. Yes. Her album dropped, I think maybe the week before we started doing our interviews. 
Of course, people are still kind of talking about it, although the, the news cycle has moved on. But people were really blaming her for the situation with Khalees. They were like, oh, this this music is wrong. This word is wrong. This term is wrong. And I'm like, why, why are you all looking to Beyonce to be a feminist, to be a black feminist, to fight the patriarchy, to eat the rich? Like, this, she is the rich. She is, she the, is rich. the rich. And Hove, she is the rich. her husband, Jay-Z, for those of you who don't know who Hove is, her husband, Jay-Z, made that very clear when he was like, capitalism is an invented word. That they, that they, they and I'm assuming they is ref, referring to white people, came up with to keep the black man down, to keep the black man poor. I'm like, why are you all surprised that they don't have any, like, class gender critique in their like in their heads from this like prosperity gospel ass couple i think i think there's two things going on here one is we need to stop looking to celebrities to dictate what's right and i i really take an issue with people who are like well this person's a role model and they should be doing this and they should be doing that they they are humans and they're humans with a lot of money who are mm-hmm. hoarding, hoarding capital. Like, I really don't think that your expectations should go any further than, like, do they entertain me or not? Which, of course, also brings up, like, the whole dancing monkey on a stage situation when it comes to black entertainers. But we'll come back to that another time. I'm. Um, so it's like what are Boom what like what are you supporting? And then I think that it also just like reeks of people wanting to be rich because they think it's going to help them avoid suffering, rather than actually trying to eliminate the suffering that we can eliminate. Boom boom. So boom, I just say shame on y'all. Like there's so much Marxist critique that was done by black people. And you think that they read white people made it up to keep you down? Like, bro, you're a billionaire. I I agree with you. And um, going to cite my upbringing again, right? I grew up uh, my formative years, adolescent years, whatever you want to call them, in a cult-like church that basically regarded Beyonce as like the devil, And so it wasn't until I got to college that I met other people who were like, you know, isn't that kind of misogynist? And then I was like, yeah, actually, let me let me take a step back. Um, But I actually (laughs) so I have not listened to an entire Beyonce album. I have not spun Renaissance one time. Every clip I hear of it, I don't like. Um, And Lots of reasons. I think Beyonce as a light-skinned, self-proclaimed Creole plus Negro woman escapes a lot of Creole (laughs) Creole Bama woman, right, escapes a lot of critique because of her popularity. Um, And but that popularity really we have to look at and like index like the fact that she is popular because she is a light-skinned Creole Bama woman, right? Um, she, in my opinion, was not the most talented person in Destiny's Child. And so, but because her father and her mother had the positions that they had, they were able to p- position her in a place where she could be 
the best pop star that we have out here. Um, and that I won't take from her. Like that is, that is where she is. But to know that this person has so much power that during a depression, because it's not a recession, she can upload to her website mystery boxes that cost not one or two dollars, but fifty dollars, and people can buy multiple of them, right? Even listen, it was thirty five dollars. We may or may not. Oh, it was thirty five. Somebody told me it's fifty. You know, you have. We may some, or may not have two like, of them. Um, I was but you, upset, you know, though. Devin yeah. works. I was like, yeah, okay, buy a couple. Of course, I come home. Why are both of them open? Beyonce was like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll save one. We'll keep it in the wrapper. And, you know, maybe it'll be a collector's item. It'll be worth something one day. Why do both of them have the wrappers off? Anyways, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so fiance, <laughs> but fiance has a job and can afford that. I'm talking about people who are like, you know, you choosing between whether you're going to feed yourself and buying a box and that, and the choice being, I'm going to buy the box because Beyonce said it. Like, I think that kind of hold, um, that's she has as a celebrity over people is scary. Mm -hmm. I think that's very scary, particularly because she is not very vocal, but she's married to a man who continues to abuse her and cheat on her. Right. And we talk about Beyonce not being a feminist, right? She is, she is hog tied to this man and they've come forward right about the abuse that she's experienced um, in that relationship. And so um, for him, to, for him to say like, you know, capitalist is a made up word to keep black men down. He is sitting right, you know, hopefully laying right next to her in bed talking about this shit. You know, I, I'm, I just, I think oh, folks I'm are sure, much I'm more sure willing. Beyonce says the same. She just wouldn't say. I, I think she believes the she same. Just thing, say she just wouldn't say it out loud. She wouldn't say it out loud. Um, and then the, even Renaissance, right? This album of queer black uh, house music that was made by a ten toes down cishet black woman. And folks are reluctant to name and critique that because of who she is. It really mm -hmm. troubles me. It really troubles me because we, we know, right? Every five or six years, Beyonce reinvents her sound to whatever's hip, whatever's gonna sell. Right. And so to even say that this is an homage to the queer folks in her life in the way that Kendrick Lamar made a song that was, quote unquote, an homage to a trans relative. Right. But not to really formative, I, I don't know, formatively include black queer people and diverse range of black queer people and black trans people in the imaging and, you know, the rollout and all of these things troubles me. And that's, that troubles me. And I think, yeah, I think we give celebrities a pass because just like you, what you said, right? It's people are not making the link between being rich as a way to avoid suffering versus like eliminating suffering. And so if we really are, are truly holding on to the words of the Kambahi River Collective in, in Black feminist thought, right? Radical Black feminist thought, let me say. They said we reject being on pedestals. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are saying that, you know, a celebrity is the pinnacle of, of black feminism. It really, uh, it, it troubles me. And I think, I mean, that's all I'm gonna say on it, but that, 
That's all I'm saying on it. That's all I gotta say I mean, for people. I mean, she is. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I love musicals, and I was recently rewatching some clips from Dreamgirls, and many of you may know that Beyonce was cast as uh, Dina in Dreamgirls, mm, who who's becomes, supposed to be Diana Ross, yeah, who becomes the lead singer of the trio, the Dreams, and there is actually a scene where. Uh, Curtis, who is supposed to be, who becomes her husband, but is the manager of the group, and her mother, the character, her mother, are watching her sing for the first time while she's singing lead, and he says, oh, she has something special, and the mom says, you make her sound like a product, and he was like, a product, I like that, I like that, and it's like, yes, Beyonce now is a product, she is a brand, and if y'all don't see the slavery connotations that come along with that, regardless of her owning her sound, owning her music, owning her companies and all of that kind of stuff, then I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't have I don't have much hope for the world. I don't. I'm I like don't. I yeah, no, Ren- I don't have much hope because Renaissance can't be the soundtrack of liberation, ain't nobody liberated. Mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. I just, you know, <laughs> you could tell, you could tell me all day to quit my job, but, but what it what, well, what do you know about a nine to, f- what do you know about a nine to I five? I mean, not gonna lie, she probably works more than a nine to five than most of us, but like the rest of her life is nice. It's not like she's working a nine to five like you or I, where not only are we working a nine to five, but then we have to come home and clean our own apartments and do all of our Mm-mm. chores and ting and things. Try and figure out, navigate this ridiculous world that we live in. But I wanted to go back to the uh, her being a light-skinned black woman. Start thinking about, have our last and final little convo around Meghan Markle and her mm-hmm. new podcast and how irritating I find her, have found her, um, even though I'm very intrigued by her life as a duchess. But whatever, y'all. Commonwealth country person, what can I say? I just think that she is kind of the the epitome of this post-feminism requiring a racial analysis because she's very vocal about being a feminist, right? About how like women need equality and things like that, but she is not vocal about race. And when she does try to talk mm-hmm. about feminism, there's just, there's no teeth to it. It's so, it's such like a, a washed out thing. Like it, it's just more like a, we need to be equal, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have any, any grit, any fire, like anything that has any potential for change. And I just, every time I hear her talk about it, I'm like, you're not talking about race only to find out. She she only recently started feeling like she was treated like a black woman. Did you hear about this? Did you did you hear what she said with on her podcast uh, episode with Mariah Carey? So they did an episode together about being biracial. And she said that she was like when I grew up I was always treated as a biracial person, as a biracial woman. And it wasn't until I, I started dating Harry that people started, started treating me as a black woman. I was not a black woman. I was a biracial woman until I started dating a white man. Is just, 
weird to me. It's very strange. I, you know, in situations like this, you got to blame the parents. Um, Her mother is what? black. Like, that's a thing. Her mother is black. Some people, some black people, though, have um, have black bodies and white minds. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever Fernand said. So, whatever Fernand said. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I just feel like, um, I mean, I don't know her mother at all. Can't speak to it. But I would... I would imagine that for that to be a realization, her mother did not really have long, serious conversations about what it meant to be black with Megan. And possibly because, I mean, if you look at if you look at Megan too fast, you don't see it. So I could. Yeah, there could be a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, as a darker skinned black woman, I don't have any type of knowledge of what it's like for for someone to look at me and not see black um and so i i can fathom it because because of the abjection of my experience uh, but i can't like you say like it just it's something that still feels a little incomprehensible to me and i i would be interested to listen to mariah carey's mariah carey's uh take on what it means to be biracial particularly because once she became famous, Mariah Carey has always kind of been like, okay, she's just black. Um, and that kind of erasure of her biracial identity after a certain, I forgot which album it was, but it was kind of like, after this album, she's not biracial no more. Mariah Carey's black. Uh, but yeah, that's so interesting to to me to also hear you say that like feminism without teeth that to me though I would connect to her own claim of like whiteness and her own mm-hmm. experience of whiteness. Like you can afford to have a feminism without teeth if you're white. Yeah. Because your feminism your feminism is I want to be a white man. Whereas like black feminism is actually this whole structure of gender well, okay, I'm gonna say radical black feminism is this whole structure of gender. This whole relation of race, this whole thing about ability, this whole thing about sexuality in class needs to be deconstructed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if yeah, if you're if your whole goal is to be a white man without some of the equipment, then have at it. Um, but that doesn't mean I got to join you in it. So <laughs> I really, I really do is... <laughs> want to understand what it was that what it was that she meant by that. By being treated as a biracial woman, and then I mean, being she, treated we got as to, a black woman. Well, definitely the well, well like uh, what does Patrice this mean Douglas. in American society? That's I guess that's yeah, my question. I, I I would say Patrice Douglas' work is actually really interesting in thinking about black gender, um, and basically, what her one of the major theses theses of her work is you know a woman is black by what has been done to her. Mm. Right? So this idea that like blackness opens up a, a body to all different types of gratuitous violence, right? Mm. So maybe Meghan Markle lived life as a biracial girl than woman, right? And didn't experience the violence that black people experience until mm. 
she went to the homeland of colonization. And they said, wait a minute, you, you just like the rest of them, honey. You just like the rest of them. And so maybe that that violence is like the distinguishing factor between what it means to be biracial and what it means to be black. Now, the biracial people that I know that have white mothers have experienced violence uh, in their white families. Um, but maybe she avoided that because her father was not really a part of her life. Mm. So she didn't have that experience of like dealing with racist grandma and uncle and auntie. Mm. I think he was, but I don't know what the details are on that. Um. But I think, I think that's a really, I think that's a good place for us to wrap things up, sending people over to Patrice Douglas's work to think more about what black womanhood means. Oh, that's the last thing I want to say, and then this is it, because we haven't, we didn't mention content warning, Aries Spears, Tiffany Haddish uh, situation, but again, cult of celebrity. One thing that I noticed, speaking of black women's social position, is that people are going ham on Tiffany Haddish, but they're not quite going ham on Aries Spears. And that is because people expect for black women to be mammies mm-hmm. all the time. And so when we hear that black women commit violence, it is like, oh my gosh, how could you do that? Because you're supposed to take care you're of us. You're supposed to take care of us. So you I would should have incur- known better. You should have known better. Yeah, with with R. Kelly, you need proof, but with Tiffany Haddish, oh, I be, I know she did it. Here's yeah. all the points. She was eating chicken at that thing. That's how I know she would be. And it's like y'all are so many complicated things. But about I think I think black women Tiffany Haddish actually she represents one of these archetypes as well, right? Like mm-hmm. she's kind of she's this loud lower class black woman. She was living in her car until she became famous. And so she she's like an errant, wayward black woman. So, of course, she would be blamed mm-hmm. for these things. She's getting put back in this role. Like, yes, she may have overcome, but she's she's that kind of like new, new aged um, Jezebel slash welfare, yes. welfare queen kind of mm-hmm. woman. And she's being punished for that as a result. For sure. And by punished, we're definitely not referring to the allegations by any means or the bringing them yeah. forward. That is not what we mean by punished. We mean punished in, in, the, in the public eye, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we, and the way she's being be dragged about compared that. to others. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not. Yeah, because I think that's the word that, um, that their lawyers have been using. Is that the mother's been trying to yeah. punish them? That's definitely not what we mean. Um, but yeah, let's wrap it so, up. Let's wrap it up. Bring it out. Take us <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, that's all we have for y'all today. Welcome back. Um, welcome back. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. 
Yes, thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or on a bumper sticker. I don't know. Do people still use bumper stickers? Tell us, should we make one for merch? Yes. (laughs) And we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. Please, 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 y'all are probably not listening to this part of the episode, but I'm just going to peer pressure you a little bit right here. Leave us a rating and a review. I was going to say, even if it's not a five-star review, you can still read, you can still, you know, leave it because it just shows that people are engaged and listening. But just leave us a five-star review. Like, why would you do anything differently? Um, (laughs) For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or to become a patron, and being a patron is very fun, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. And last but not least, we must remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye.